It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Vasily Matrokin sighed as yet another batch of files was dropped onto his desk. The process of moving the KGB's archives had begun in 1972. It had been over a decade, and they still weren't done. Working from his office in the Lubyanka building, Vasily had reviewed 300,000 files over the past 10 years. He stretched and yawned. This new one could wait for tomorrow. Vasily shifted his weight as he waited in the security line to exit the building, eyeing the security guards checking his co-workers' briefcases and handbags. He had to remind himself not to be nervous. He was little more than a glorified librarian, and besides, it wasn't like he had anything dangerous in his satchel, unless you counted the leftovers of his tuna sandwich. The moment he got home, Vasily hurried into his bedroom and took off his shoes. He smiled as he picked a few tiny slips of paper out of the toe caps and examined the notes he had scribbled down, still perfectly legible. Vasily lifted his mattress and added the notes to the collection he had gathered throughout the week. He typed them all up over the weekend, but for now he had to rest. File 300,001 was waiting for him at the office. If he was going to copy the secrets it held undetected, he'd need his wits about him. This is Espionage, the ParCast original exploring the missions of the world's most incredible spies and what brought their covert operations into the public eye. And throughout this show, we'll explore real-world spy tactics required to impersonate, exploit, and infiltrate the most confidential places in the world. I'm Carter Roy. This is our second of two episodes on George Trofimoff, an American intelligence officer who sent hundreds of classified documents to the Soviet Union while he was the head of the Nuremberg Joint Interrogation Center from 1969 to 1987. Last week, we explored how George's addiction to luxury allowed his foster brother, Igor Susamil, to convince him to become a spy for the KGB. From 1969 to 1987, George provided the KGB with hundreds of classified documents from the Nuremberg Joint Interrogation Center where he worked. This week, we'll tell the story of how George went from one of the most prolific KGB agents in history to the senior-most U.S. military officer to be charged with the crime of espionage. This episode is part of ParCast's Summer of 69 event, July 22nd through August 9th. All your favorite ParCast shows are teaming up to commemorate the 50th anniversary of a landmark summer in American history, the summer of 1969. From the Manson murders to the moon landing, we're diving deep into the summer America hit a boiling point, with 23 special episodes across 16 different ParCast originals. 
We'll be digging into the fallout of MLK's assassination, a wide-reaching LSD cult, and rumors of a Kennedy family cover-up. You can find these specials and more on all our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. At ParCast, we are grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help. George Trofimov couldn't believe what was happening to him. In just a few days, he was supposed to be closing out 1994 with a move to his dream home in Florida. Instead, he was sitting in a cold jail cell in Nuremberg, arrested on suspicion of espionage against NATO and the Federal Republic of Germany. The morning of December 14, 1994, had begun like any other. George's wife, Yuda, got up before the crack of dawn to head to her job at a travel agency. But shortly after she left, around 6 a.m., George had been woken up by a knock at the door. He was greeted by the sight of German Federal Office of Criminal Investigation agent Norbert Buchbender and a gaggle of U.S. Army counterintelligence agents. They had a warrant for George's arrest. Although George was an American citizen, his alleged crimes extended to spying on the U.S.'s allies in NATO. Since Germany was part of this alliance, George could be arrested and tried there and didn't have to be extradited to the United States. Thanks to German law, George was guaranteed a speedy hearing. But first, Agent Buchbender subjected him to almost 10 hours of intense questioning which George agreed to after consulting with an attorney. Right off the bat, Buchbender told George that a KGB administrator named Vasily Mitrokin had spent years meticulously taking notes on the organization's files. And in 1992, he had defected to Great Britain. In his notes, Vasily had described thousands of classified documents that were provided by an American intelligence officer via a Russian Orthodox priest. He told George that the German Federal Office of Criminal Investigation, or BKA, suspected that this officer and the priest were George and his foster brother Igor Zuzumil. He informed George that Igor had been arrested as well and was currently being interrogated in Munich. Buchbender wasted no time getting straight to the point. He asked George flat out if he was a KGB agent. George categorically denied it. To him, it seemed like all Buchbender had to go off of was Vasily Mitrokin's notes, which didn't even identify him by name. If there was a smoking gun, so to speak, that directly linked George to the documents, he felt like Buchbender would have let off with it. But the BKA agent was undeterred. He pressed George to admit that he was the KGB agent, codename Ante. George held firm. He said that there must have been some mistake. He had never heard that word in his life. 
For the next several hours, the two men went back and forth as Bookbender questioned George about his relationship with Igor. While George admitted that he had visited Igor before with classified documents in his briefcase, he insisted that he had never shown them to him or that Igor had looked at the documents without George's knowledge. George did admit that Igor had loaned him money around three dozen times, but only to help him support his children as well as to try and help George keep up with his mortgage payments in the early 1980s. But he kept quiet about the regular cash payments Igor provided him from the KGB. By 5 p.m., George had yet to crack under Bookbender's pressure. Although the BKA agent realized he wasn't getting anywhere, he was certain George was guilty. A hearing before the Federal Constitutional Court, Germany's Supreme Court, was scheduled for the next day. While Buchbender was questioning George, Igor Zuzamil was going through intense questioning of his own. Although he acknowledged that the church's patriarchy was heavily connected to the KGB, Igor denied ever being asked to work on its behalf. Like George, Igor refused to turn on his beloved foster brother. However, when his interrogator said that George claimed Igor had lent him money over three dozen times, Igor refuted it. He said it had only been once or twice, and only in very small amounts. He knew that there was no way that the BKA could have traced the payments, since they were only in cash. The only way they knew about the payments at all was from Vasily Mitrokin's notes. If he stayed strong, he figured there was no way the charges against him would stick. However, one piece of evidence the agents searching Igor's house discovered linked him to espionage activities, a hollowed out screwdriver. According to the American Spy Museum, spies may hide things in their own clothing or in the environment or they may use objects designed with secret compartments. Igor's hollowed-out screwdriver was a classic example of one of these concealment devices, but he continued to play dumb. He said that when he had bought his house, the tools were already there. He had no idea that the screwdriver was hollow. Igor's interrogators were convinced Igor was lying, they scheduled his Supreme Court hearing for the next day to take place right after George's. The next morning, Agent Buchbender told George about the screwdriver that had been found at Igor's house. They said it definitively linked Igor to espionage activities, but George knew better than to fall into Buchbender's trap. He only commented that just because such a device was found at Igor's house, that had no bearing on his own case. Before being taken to the Supreme Court, George received some bad news. The commander of the American Army's 18th Military Intelligence Battalion came into the BKA's office and told George that his security clearance had been suspended and that he had been placed on administrative leave, effective immediately. Furthermore, his approval for the early retirement program and the $25,000 check that came with it had been withdrawn. George was devastated. He had been relying on that retirement check to kickstart his new life in Florida. Without it, he didn't know what he'd do. Although if he was going to jail for the rest of his life, 
he supposed it wouldn't really matter. From the BKA's office in Nuremberg, George was taken to the German Supreme Court in Karlsruhe. Once he was in front of the judge, George continued to maintain his innocence, and while he emphasized how much he loved and admired Igor, he was a little less steadfast in his brother's defense than he had been the day before. Regarding the documents he had in his briefcase during visits to Igor's house, George only said, quote, I do not know whether Igor, during that time period, examined those records. However, I do not believe so. After George's hearing, it was time for Igor to go before the judge. When asked about George's visits, Igor insisted he never looked inside his briefcase. Regarding George's claims that Igor had lent him money, he said, quote, This is an outright lie. I neither withdrew money from the bank to give to Trofimov, nor did I take out credit at the bank for him. Once Igor's hearing was finished, both he and George were brought before the judge for his decision. Although the BKA agents had presented a compelling case that both men were guilty of espionage, their alleged activities fell outside Germany's five-year statute of limitations. In order to pursue the case further, there would need to be proof that they had spied on the KGB's behalf after December 12, 1989. Since there wasn't any evidence to show they had, the judge had no choice but to let George and Igor go free. George was elated. He was a free man. And with his espionage career firmly in the rearview window, the German authorities would never be able to come after him again, even if they found more incriminating evidence. But his problems weren't over yet. When George got home in the early hours of December 15, 1994, his wife was waiting for him. His arrest had devastated Yuda. She had no idea that George worked for the KGB. She begged him to tell the truth. George looked into his wife's eyes. He realized at that moment just how much he loved her. He swore on his parents' graves that he had done nothing wrong. Yuta believed him. Whether she was fooling herself or not, she couldn't bear the thought that her husband would keep such a terrible secret from her. George breathed a sigh of relief. He didn't want to lose Yuta. She was the best thing that had ever happened to him. It had taken him five tries, but he had found the love of his life, and the idea of losing her made him feel sick. Although the loss of George's retirement bonus made things more difficult, they decided to go ahead with their move to Florida as planned. George could stay in Germany and contest the decision to withdraw his bonus, but he didn't want to deal with all the legal red tape he would have to go through. To make sure the rest of his retirement could proceed, George hired an American lawyer based out of Frankfurt. Once he was up to date on George's case, his lawyer advised him against going to the United States, where there was no statute of limitations on espionage cases. If George moved to Florida, the FBI could knock on his door at any moment. But George ignored his advice. He wasn't worried. No matter what Vasily Matrokin's note said, there was nothing concretely linking him to any espionage activities. He was certain that he could live out the rest of his days 
and the life of ease he had always wanted. He was wrong. Coming up, George puts his trust in the wrong people. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. And now, back to the story. In December 1994, George Trofimov's dream retirement was nearly derailed when he and his foster brother, Igor Zuzamil, were arrested under suspicion of espionage. But because the five-year statute of limitations on his activities had passed, they were allowed to go free. On June 1st, 1995, George and his wife, Yuda, officially moved into their home at Indian River Colony Club in Melbourne, Florida. One of the first things George did upon arriving in the U.S. was sign up for as many credit cards as he could. Unlike in Germany, which required an outstanding balance to be paid by the end of the month, George could increase the debt owed with virtually no limit. Despite Yuda's concerns, George racked up almost $40,000 of debt for improvements on the house. Rather than curtail his spending habits, he decided to take out a second mortgage in order to pay his bills. But that proved to only be a temporary solution. By late 1996, George's financial situation had become untenable. He needed money, and he needed it fast. So he turned to the only person who he thought could help him. Igor. Although there was nothing more George could do for the KGB, Igor promised to see what he could do. Around Easter of 1997, Igor called George with good news. He told George that he should be able to secure a $42,000 payment for him without much difficulty, but the money might take a while since it had to be funneled through the church. An immense weight lifted off of George's shoulders. He thought his problems were over. But what he didn't realize was that they were just beginning. Ever since George had arrived in the United States, the FBI had been keeping tabs on him. There was no statute of limitations on the crimes they believed he had committed, and they were determined to make George pay for selling his adopted country secrets to the KGB. But FBI Special Agent Tony Wagoner was facing the same problem that the BKA agents in Germany had been unable to overcome. Although Vasily Matrokin's files made it clear George had worked for the KGB, there was no direct link between him and the crimes he had committed. The FBI's surveillance on George was comprehensive. They tapped his phones, tracked his movements, read his mail, patiently waited for him to make one wrong move. And when George asked Igor for money in early April of 1997, Agent Wagoner realized he had his chance. Wagoner believed that George himself could be the smoking gun he and his team needed. If George freely confessed to what he had done, and what he said corroborated the information in Vasily Matrokin's notes, 
it could be enough proof to get George convicted of espionage. Of course, Wagoner knew George wouldn't confess his crimes to just anyone. It had to be someone he trusted. But Wagoner was certain he wouldn't be able to convince any of George's associates to turn on him. He needed to find someone who could build enough of a relationship with George to create the trust needed for a confession. Wagoner knew just the guy. He contacted FBI Special Agent Dmitry N. Druyinsky, an expert in false flag operations. According to Merrill Perlman of the Columbia Journalism Review, many commentators trace the use of false flag to pirates who would fly the flag of a target ship until they got close enough to attack, at which time they would raise the skull and crossbones too late for the target ship to attack. Eventually, this term became an espionage term for an undercover agent who assumes the identity of an operative from another country in order to gain information from a suspect or put a frame on an enemy group. As long as Druyinsky didn't force George to confess anything, he had a great deal of leeway on how he could get George to talk. His plan was simple. Knowing that George desperately needed money, Druyinsky would pose as a member of the Russian embassy with ties to the KGB named Igor Galkin, claiming that a former KGB analyst had destroyed many of their files. Druyinsky would ask George to help piece back the information that had been destroyed. In exchange, Druyinsky would promise to give George the money he needed. But Druyinsky knew it wasn't as easy as calling George up on the phone and telling him this. George was smart. He wouldn't have risen so far in the military and gotten away with espionage for 20 years if he wasn't. In order for the plan to work, the situation would have to be so convincing that George would have no choice but to believe it was real. The first step began with the delivery of a vague, handwritten letter to George's house on July 10, 1997. It read, Dear friend, we urgently need to meet with you to discuss a developing situation of your past cooperation with us. This situation is serious to all of us. Please use public telephone to call trusted friend who will wait at 10 o'clock a.m. or 11 o'clock today. Do not use your home telephone to call or discuss this with somebody. Do not forget to destroy this letter after you make telephone call. Your friends. The letter listed a phone number for George to call. He destroyed the letter immediately. He wasn't sure who had sent the letter and didn't want to find out. Plus, he thought Igor was going to get him the money. He was willing to wait. But Agent Druyinsky was undeterred. He had planted the seed. Now he had to water it. A few days later, Druyinsky called George at home. He introduced himself as Igor Galkin from the Russian Embassy in Washington, D.C. He said there was an urgent matter they had to discuss regarding their mutual project. Druyinsky told George that there was a former KGB analyst who might be cooperating with German authorities. He said that the analyst could cause problems for George, but that the embassy could offer George protection if he needed it. Throughout the 30-minute phone call, 
George resisted Druyinsky's offers. He claimed he was never involved in anything illegal and that he didn't need protection. But Druyinsky kept pressing. He told George that in exchange for his help, he would receive help in return. Finally, George slipped. He told Druyinsky, I don't want to get back in. I hated my last few years in the service. I don't want any part of it anymore. Druyinsky said he understood and ended the call. It was just a small slip, but George had confirmed that he had done something for the KGB. Druyinsky just had to get him to spell it out in more detail. Over the next few months, Druyinsky kept sending George letters emphasizing the urgency of the situation that the missing analyst had created. But George still refused to help, even with the promise of financial assistance. On February 4, 1998, Druyinsky called George again, hoping to prod him into a face-to-face meeting. As usual, George resisted Druyinsky's requests, but he wasn't hanging up the phone either. The FBI agent tried to prey on George's professed love for Mother Russia. He reminded George that he had been paid very well for his services, and now he was just being asked to render the smallest bit of assistance. If George agreed to help, he would be doing a huge service to his ancestral country. After the call ended, George thought about what Druyinsky had said. His words reminded George of Igor's promise to try and secure more money for him, but that process might take a while. He wondered if perhaps Druyinsky might be a representative of the Russian Orthodox Church's main office. He wondered if in order to get the payment Igor had promised, he would have to provide the assistance Druyinsky was requesting. For whatever reason, George didn't pick up the phone and talk to Igor about his suspicions. Perhaps he thought it was out of Igor's hands at that point, but he never said anything about the matter. Slowly but surely, Druyinsky began to gain George's trust. Believing that Druyinsky was speaking on behalf of the church, he began to speak more openly about his prior espionage work. During a call on August 28, 1998, George assured Druyinsky that none of his wives, including Yuta, knew anything about what he had done for the KGB. He also confirmed having met with KGB agents whose pictures Druyinsky had sent to him, identifying them by name. Once again, Druyinsky asked George if he'd be willing to meet. This time, he was much more receptive to the idea, but he wanted Druyinsky to come to him. Druyinsky said that wouldn't be a problem and promised he'd stay in touch. For a while, George didn't hear anything from Druyinsky. Finally, almost six months later, on February 18, 1999, he got a call. Druyinsky informed him that his superiors had approved a meeting. He asked George if he could meet at a Comfort Inn near George's house on Wednesday, February 24th. After some back and forth, George agreed. It had taken a while, but Druyinsky had gained George's trust. The only question was whether he trusted him enough to fully confess to the crimes he had committed. Coming up, Agent Druyinsky springs his trap. 
And now, back to the story. From July 1997 to February 1999, FBI Special Agent Dmitry Druyinsky had executed a lengthy false flag operation on George Trofimov. Hoping to get George to freely confess to sending confidential documents to the KGB, Druyinsky finally got him to agree to a meeting on February 24, 1999. When George arrived at the Comfort Inn for the meeting, he was visibly nervous. Although he trusted Druyinsky, he was suspicious that something was off. He was aware that it could be a setup, but if he didn't get the money Druyinsky had promised him, George could lose everything his house, his car, and probably his wife. Druyinsky insisted he didn't have anything to worry about, and George eventually calmed down and started talking. And talking. And talking. The psychology behind secret keeping is complex. According to a study conducted by Michael Slepian of Columbia University, the content of someone's secret is less important than how often he or she thinks about it. For many years, even though George was keeping a secret of monumental proportions, it didn't seem to be something he thought about all that often. In his mind, he wasn't doing anything particularly harmful, so it wasn't something that was constantly on his mind. However, with Druyinsky's relentless pursuit of George and his espionage work, George was forced to truly confront what he had done. While he didn't necessarily feel guilty about it, the stress of having to constantly think about his secret had been steadily building. And when he met with Druyinsky, that pressure finally caused him to burst. George told Druyinsky his entire life story. His poverty-stricken upbringing in Berlin, his relationship with his foster brother Igor, how he became involved with the KGB. He described the process of how he took documents from the Joint Interrogation Center where he worked, photographed them at home, then returned the documents with nobody the wiser. When Druyinsky produced photos of KGB agents he suspected George had met with, George was able to identify them by name and the various locations where they met. When the meeting was wrapping up, Druyinsky gave George a phone number he could call and an address to send letters to if anything else came up. George promised he would, then reminded Druyinsky again about the financial issues he was having. The undercover FBI agent promised to see what he could do. As far as Druyinsky was concerned, his false flag operation was complete. But if he disappeared completely off the face of the earth, it would arouse George's suspicions. He had to keep the ruse going until Agent Wagoner could gather the necessary information and obtain an arrest warrant. Getting everything ready would take a long time. George had escaped the law once already, and Wagoner was determined to not let that happen again. If he was going to arrest George, he wanted to be sure that his case was airtight. Meanwhile, George was getting frantic. On July 26, 1999, the 80-year-old Igor died of health complications before he could secure George any money. George called Druyinsky shortly after Igor's death, practically begging for money. 
Druyinsky told him that he had submitted a report to his higher-ups about George's urgent financial needs, but was still waiting on an answer. He promised to call George as soon as he had more news. With George unable to keep up with the payments on his house, he was growing increasingly desperate for the money. The more Druyinsky delayed, the more frantic George got. But George's worries were a huge asset to Druyinsky. He was only thinking about getting the money, not where it was coming from. He was too desperate to be suspicious. The wheels on Agent Wagoner's case against George were turning slowly, and it took him almost another year before he was ready to make his move. Finally, on June 2nd, 2000, Druyinsky called George to tell him the payment he had promised was finally approved. They agreed to meet at the Hilton Hotel near the Tampa airport on June 14th. But it wasn't a payment that had been approved. It was a warrant for George's arrest. Druyinsky asked George not to bring his wife, but George ignored him. This was a cause to celebrate, and he wanted Yuta to be by his side. The night of June 13th, they drove to Tampa together to bask in what they believed was their impending good fortune. At 9 a.m. on the morning of June 14th, Yuta dropped George off in front of the Hilton. She thought he was just collecting an inheritance payment from Igor's will and preferred to stay in the car. In his eagerness, George had arrived at the hotel an hour early. He patiently waited in the hotel lobby, imagining all the things he could buy once he reduced his debt. At 10 a.m. on the dot, several men George didn't recognize approached him. One of them flashed a badge and identified himself as FBI Special Agent Tony Wagoner. He informed George he was under arrest for alleged espionage activities against the United States. George was in shock. All he could do was point to his car outside and say his wife was waiting for him but he never got a chance to speak to her. George was immediately handcuffed and shackles were placed on his feet. Yuta watched in disbelief as the agents put George in the back of a van and drove away. Later on, she would be questioned as well, but the FBI determined that she had no idea about George's spy career. With no money to pay for an attorney, George had to settle for a court-appointed counsel, Daniel Hernandez. Although he did his best to prepare a defense for George, Hernandez faced an uphill battle against the overwhelming resources the government devoted to the prosecution. George's bail bond hearing was held on June 20th, 2000. Terry Furr, the federal prosecutor, spent over an hour reading out the 32 different criminal acts George was accused of. The judge agreed with Furr's request to deny bail on the grounds that George was a significant flight risk. He would have to remain in jail while his case moved forward. With George stuck in jail, Yuta was suddenly forced to navigate life on her own, all while under the scrutiny of the media and the law. Saddled with the immense debt George had accrued, Yuta was forced to declare bankruptcy. However, None of the credit card companies came to her bankruptcy hearing, which meant the debt was completely erased. Ironically, 
If George had put aside his pride and filed for bankruptcy, instead of looking to Igor and Druyinsky for money, he would probably have remained a free man. Originally, the trial was scheduled to take place shortly after George's arrest, but as the prosecution built its case, the start date kept getting pushed back. Although they had built much of their case while Druyinsky conducted his false flag operation, there was still a lot of work to be done. Witnesses had to be located, testimonies had to be taken, and further documents had to be gathered. After almost a year of preparation, George's trial began on June 4, 2001. The prosecution's case revolved around Dmitry Druyinsky's false flag operation against George. Wearing a toupee, a fake mustache, and horn-rimmed glasses so his identity wouldn't be compromised on future missions, Druyinsky's testimony lasted nearly four days. He painstakingly laid out how, under the false identity of Igor Galkin, he lured George into admitting all the crimes he had committed on behalf of the KGB. After Juyinsky's testimony, the prosecution's next witness was a member of the British Secret Intelligence Service who had worked with Vasily Mitrokin. This agent, who went only by John Doe in order to protect his identity, described Mitrokin's files that referenced George's KGB codenames Marquis, Ante, and Konzul, which corroborated many of the actions and information George had told Agent Druyinsky about during their meeting at the Comfort Inn on February 24, 1999. George took the stand himself on June 21, 2001, 17 days into the trial. His defense revolved around the argument that everything he had told Druyinsky was a lie. George claimed he had made it up in order to secure the money he needed to lessen his debt. During the cross-examination, the prosecution was easily able to poke holes in George's testimony when they pointed out that he had been able to identify photos of men who were confirmed KGB agents. George's only explanation was that it was a complete coincidence. The trial officially ended on June 26, 2001. It took the jury less than two hours to reach their decision. George was found guilty on all charges. His sentencing was scheduled for three months later on September 27th. For the crimes George had committed, the minimum sentence was 27 years and the maximum was life in prison. Either way, since George was 73 years old, it meant George would almost certainly die in jail. Both sides were allowed to argue for a larger or lesser departure from the official sentencing guidelines. For the U.S. government, nothing short of a full life sentence would suffice. In a letter to the judge, Assistant Secretary of Defense John P. Steinbitt wrote, quote, In our view, a sentence short of life imprisonment does not adequately address the scope and consequences of Trofimov's actions and would fail to serve as an appropriate deterrent for others who would contemplate violating a trust to protect our nation's security. The judge agreed. George was sentenced to life in prison. A life spent in pursuit of luxury ended in a tiny cell on September 19, 2014, 
when George died at 87 years old of unknown reasons at the U.S. Penitentiary in Victorville, California. In the years since George's trial, many have wondered why someone who possessed such a deep hatred of communism could become one of the most prolific spies in the history of the KGB. But for George Trofimov, his espionage activities weren't motivated by a deeper patriotism for Russia beyond its communist government. They were motivated only by his own selfish desires. And in that respect, he is like many other people who turn to espionage. According to Dr. Mike Gellis of the U.S. Naval Criminal Investigative Service, spies value money not just for what it can buy, but for what it symbolizes success, power, and influence. In the end, George's unending pursuit of the so-called good life superseded his hatred of communism or the loyalty he felt to the United States for shaping him into a respected officer, commander, and friend. Only one thing mattered to George Trofimov, and that was George Trofimov. And because of that, he died in a jail cell, alone and penniless. Thanks again for tuning in to our Espionage Summer of 69 special. We'll be back with a new episode of Espionage next week. If you enjoyed this episode, check out ParCast's continued retrospective into the summer of 69. From July 22nd through August 9th, the summer of 69 will feature 23 special episodes across 16 different podcasts, covering everything from Vietnam War protests to the Zodiac Killer. Be sure to check it out on our new ParCast Presents feed on Spotify or anywhere you listen to podcasts. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll be back next week with another deep dive into the world of clandestine operation. Espionage was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound design by Russell Nash, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Espionage is written by Alex Benedin. I'm Carter Roy. <laughs>